0: Let's give the Lord a round of applause. Welcome into our presence here. Children, you're dismissed to follow Miss Shelley. How many of you have giants in your life? Anybody know what a giant looks like? Doesn't necessarily have to be Goliath. It could be pornography. It could be a broken family. It could be debt. Giants have a lot of different looks in your life. But what happens to a giant when Jesus walks in? Can he stand? So what's the giant in your life? Every giant, every name in heaven and below heaven has to bow to the name of Jesus. So take your giants before the Lord. One of the things we're told in Scripture is that there's power in our testimony, right? And the blood of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to hear a testimony of how God's worked in a young man's life. So John? John Martin? Come on up.
1: Good morning. So, uh, I guess in the second song this morning, it kind of talked about how God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, and so I kind of wanted to talk to you about a testimony of something that's happened to me in the last couple months, and uh, we as a church did a 40-day fast earlier this year, and uh, maybe a week into it, God started putting forgiveness on my heart and um so i wasn't really sure what about you know who who i had to forgive or or what that entailed completely and so when i was 17 about 10 years ago um i was you know not not of the the best upstanding citizen so i um I was selling drugs and I had a gun put to my face and put me into a crippling state of anxiety for 10 years. It it stopped me from having relationships, being able to open up with people, would have never been able to come up here and and do this until I got through this forgiveness that God was speaking to me about. And... uh, after God's knocking on my door telling me forgiveness, um, and, you know, it's, I, I'm the house wash guy, right, I pressure wash, so I'm working the summertime and the wintertime, it was like February, March, right, and not doing anything at that time of year, so I'm bouncing around, I'm at my friend's gym, and, and his friend is is there working out, and he tells me about this business they're starting up next door, and I go next door to to check it out, and the manager is the guy who held the gun to me. And he didn't really recognize who I was, and I didn't know, you know I mean, I knew who he was immediately. You know, that's not something you forget. And I knew right then wh- where the forgiveness was, where 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 this, this was going, and <clears throat> it was really an uncomfortable thing for me to have to do. And I knew I had to tell him, just like this, pretty uncomfortable for me. <laughs> um, so I knew I had to tell him. And I'd always told myself I forgave him, you know. And and we tell ourselves things, you know, things all the time, and and. I think there's there's more power to forgiveness than we realize, and we start to grow nose-blind to what we're dealing with and walking with every day. And, and uh, you know, I didn't realize some of the things that my life was shut off to because I hadn't forgiven this person for such a significant thing that had happened in my life. And, you know... So I first talked to him on the phone a couple weeks later and, and told him, you know, who I was and, and what had happened and that God wanted me to tell him that I wasn't just to tell myself I forgave him, but I had to tell him that I forgave him for what had happened. And, you know, he apologized up and down and he thanked me for telling him and he had told me how what he did had negatively affected him for so long. And he didn't even know who I was, so there was no way for him to get any kind of closure on it. And so... immediately after talking to him, you know, I did I did end up going and, and seeing him in person, shaking his hand afterwards, but, you know... I get the first part of telling him, you know, it was a little bit easier on the phone than approaching him in person, you know, and, and that was just my, my small step in order to to be able to get the closure on the situation. But what I didn't realize is immediately I had this, re- this huge relief, and it felt like a weight I had been carrying. I didn't know I was carrying. I was nose-blind to the anxiety I was dealing with and it was, you know, you know, happened here in town. And so anytime I'm in that part of the neighborhood, going down that street, I start to sweat, you know, and I can feel my my heart going up, my heart rate, you know, speeding up. And I go into this just locked up state where like I'm just frozen and and have this fear and you know, anytime I would think it through in my mind, cause it would things would remind me all the time of that situation and, and you know, uh you go into this locked up state, and for the first time I could walk it through my head and smile and laugh and realize that God was there the whole time and I walked out of that situation, he didn't pull a trigger. You know, God had me in his back pocket the whole time, which I never thought about that until after the whole situation, until after telling him I forget. That was something that was just in there that I didn't even realize. And another thing that had crippled me, you know, I'm I'm into hunting, shooting guns and everything. I hunt, you know, I started washing houses so that I could, Go into deer season without a job, so I could hunt every day. So, <laughs> I, you know, when I had to take my pistol permit class, I took it twice because I never, never could finish it. And when I got to the practical part of it, the the part where you have to do the shooting test, and and I would couldn't I couldn't be in the room with a handgun for the last ten years, and when I I had to take it, and I'm sweating, freaking out. I shoot guns every single week, but this might not seem like a huge thing to say, like, I get anxiety around a handgun, but I don't get a single bit of anxiety around a handgun now. I got my pistol permit class, I can go to a store and look at them behind the counter, I can go pick them up, I can go shooting, you know, and, and I don't have any issues whatsoever. So there's, like, that's a small, he- you know, it, to me, it, it almost sounds like it sounds ridiculous to say, but it it's it's a, a healing that, you know, we've had different people come up and talk about healings and physical healings, and I thought, well, this is a huge mental healing that I needed and didn't know I needed, and God was looking out for me, uh, even though I didn't know I needed needed looked out for and 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 (laughs) it's it's kind of amazing to see what different things that has come from forgiveness and so i just wanted to let everyone know what the important things of, of forgiveness that you don't realize or i don't didn't realize how important it was and how freeing it was and and how much more confident I've been ever since and been able to tell people about my personal life and been able to open up and have relationships with people, which, I mean, historically, if you look, I sit over in the corner, (laughs) closed off and, and not opened up. And so, for me to be able to step out and talk to anyone or tell anyone about my life is testimony in itself that there's been huge changes in what god's done in my life since being able to tell my my biggest issue that you know that i forgive it and and it's in the past so, thank you
0: so power in the testimony forgiveness holds the key to what Whose? So if you're holding unforgiveness against anybody, and like John shared, you don't understand sometimes how much bondage you're in. And just that s- simple, I'm gonna say simple act of forgiving somebody breaks the chains off. You know, and John's able to move, he's moved seats. He and Christina are not in the same seats they've been sitting in for years now. They're doing little steps, but they've changed their seats. <laughs> Um, front row. All right. So how's everybody doing this morning? How many of you have one of these in your house now? All of you that are, have children downstairs, you probably have one of these sitting in your house somewhere, a little mini greenhouse. Okay, everybody see that? You probably, I can barely see it it's a seed. And what do we know about seeds? <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Can this seed do anything right here like I have it? Okay, I could take a make a snack out of it and wouldn't do a whole lot for me, would it? Okay. So, my message this morning is about sacrificial seed. The theme of the month for May is sacrifice and, you know, Eric preached on it last week. AJ is going to hit it next week, but a seed is something that God created. That by itself, it has the entire genetic code to reproduce itself. And so, put it in the little mini terrarium here. Throw some dirt on the floor for y'all. A lot of (laughs) there. The seed's still in there. Trust me. Okay. Anybody see anything growing yet? Why not? How many of you are impatient? You plant a seed, you want instantaneous results, right? There should be a plant sticking up out of this thing by now. Okay, needs a little more light maybe. Okay. All right. So there's my illustration for the moment. Spilled dirt and everything is... A seed by itself, if you don't, if I continue holding that thing in my hand till I die, it's not doing anything. It has no value for what it was created for. As soon as I stick it in the dirt, God shines some light on it, some water hits it, that's when the miracle starts happening. That that little insignificant seed that most of you couldn't even see starts to germinate. And it takes the genetic code that God put inside of it and reproduces itself. And so how many of you sitting in this room right now were born of a mother? <laughs> we celebrated Mother's Day last week. We know all about it. We were all born of a woman. We were all born from a, you know, an earthly father. And because of that, what's our genetic code like? It's corrupted. Because I don't care how good your parents were, the sin nature is in all of us. That's in our genetic code. And so when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and this is going to be my paraphrase, is Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He said, we must die to ourselves. We need to plant our old self into the ground that we can be born again, a spiritual birth, a new creation from good seed. Because as long as I don't know Jesus, as long as I have not repented of my sins and asked him to be my Lord and Savior, my genetic code is from my parents. How I react to situations, the way I think, comes from my original seed, which was corrupted. And so when Jesus said, I have to be born again, or you have to be born again, in the new birth that we get spiritually, who's our father? The one that created us. So the old genetic code, we still have that. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit working through us, he can deliver us from things. He can change our outcome of our destination, obviously, is when you accept Jesus, you change addresses. You're no longer going to hell and condemned to separation from God for eternity. You've now entered into the family of God and you're gonna join the kingdom when you die. So Jesus, if he had stayed where he was, perfect fellowship with the Father and Holy Spirit, right? Did he need to come to earth He could have stayed exactly like he was, and we could have tried and figured it out on our own, okay? But because God loved us so much, he loved his creation so much, he said, I've got a seed that I'm gonna plant in the earth. And Jesus gave up perfect fellowship and said, send me, and he came and walked the earth as a man for 30 years, and began his ministry, and three years after that, suffered and died on the cross. He planted him, he allowed himself to be planted as a seed, and when you plant something, when you put a seed in the ground, what do you expect? Do you expect a harvest of whatever it is you planted? So when Jesus planted himself, when he was allowed himself to die on the cross and go into the ground and be dead for three days, he was planted. But when he was resurrected to life, what was God expecting from that seed planting? A harvest, a harvest of what? Or should I say a harvest of who? You're the harvest. God planted that seed because he wanted something back. He wanted his family back. He wanted his creation back. And so when you've come to the point where you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's the new birth. That's the harvest that God's expecting when he planted Jesus into the ground and Jesus died of himself. So I want to just define a couple things for you, is what is sacrifice? And of course, I pulled them out, out my Webster's 1828 dictionary. And sacrifice, it's a verb, and verbs imply action of some sort, right? And so Webster says the first definition under sacrifice is to offer something to God in homage or worship, either as atonement for sin or to procure favor or to express thankfulness. Not going to find that definition in our modern dictionaries, are we? Offer something to God. The second definition of sacrifice is to destroy, surrender, or suffer to be lost for the sake of attaining something. God sacrificed. He suffered to lose the perfect fellowship with the Son for the sake of attaining us. Makes us pretty valuable, doesn't it? that Jesus gave up his place in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit because he loved us that much, because he didn't want to see us separated for the rest of eternity from him. The second thing is, what is a seed? And the first definition there, the substance, animal or vegetable, which nature prepares for the reproduction or conservation of the species. Second definition, definition, that from which anything springs, original or first principle, For example, the seeds of virtue or seeds of vice. And the third definition is progeny, offspring or descendants. For example, the seeds of Abraham. Anybody in here the seed of Abraham? You're born again believer. You're a seed of Abraham. So that's the definitions of it. So sacrificial seed. Um, Pop quiz time. What was the first sacrifice in the Bible? Okay, bu- okay, good. You know, the, way before the book of Leviticus, there was all kinds of sacrifices that God had talked about. Moses wrote them down, but you know, Cain and Abel, you know, some people think Cain and Abel is the first offering first sacrifice. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, Adam has committed the original sin, right? He corrupted God's creation, his perfect creation, Adam has corrupted it. And it's now falling. It's no longer the perfect creation that God made it. Um, In their shame, Adam and Eve did what? They hid from God. You ever read that and thought, how absurd can you be? Hide from God? Yet we all do it. We think we can hide our sin from God. We think we can hide in our shame that God's not going to find us out. But Adam and Eve set the example. That in their shame and their nakedness, they said, we're going to hide from God. We don't want Him to see us like this. You know, God obviously found them, called them out, and he pronounces judgment. And what do they do? Adam blamed Eve. That woman you gave me, Lord, don't do it, guys. It's not your wife's fault. And then Eve did what? She blamed the serpent. It was somebody else's fault. So don't blame other people for the sin that you've committed. Verse 21, God doesn't leave you how he finds you. Isn't that good news? That No matter what state you're in, when God finds you, when you hear God's voice, he doesn't leave you how he found you. They were naked and afraid. They were naked and ashamed. God didn't leave them like that. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God made them coats of skins and clothed Adam and his wife. Where'd God get the skins? He run down to Target. (laughs) He created all the animals, right? And we have to read into this a little bit, but he had to kill an animal to clothe them with its skins. So God provided the example of the first sacrifice to clothe our nakedness, to clothe our shame. And so an innocent animal, think about that. Adam is the one that sinned. And an innocent animal had to die to cover his sin. Does that sound familiar? Lamb of God. Innocent animal. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He didn't have to die. He could have let us suffer for eternity. But as an innocent man, totally guilt free from any sin, he said, I'll take your place. And he offered himself up on the cross so that we could be not just covering our sins, what the animal skins did. They covered Adam and Eve's nakedness that they were ashamed of. So God covered them so they no longer felt the shame, but they were still in their sin. Jesus' blood doesn't just cover us. It cleanses us of our sin. That when we ask for forgiveness, when we repent of our sins, it cleanses us. It breaks off chains of anxiety. It breaks off fear of certain areas in your life. You know, John shared that when he goes down that certain street where the gun was held to his head, it caused him to freeze up, to sweat, to just know the fear again. But now that he's forgiven, he can walk down that street and not have a care in the world. That's what the blood of Jesus can do for you, is it can take those giants that you've had standing in your face, beating on you for decades maybe, and he'll just say, go away. (laughs) you have no place in this person's life anymore. So what is your fear? What's your giant that you're allowing to continually beat you down? Um, John chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, in whatever form you happen to have them, yeah, you screen people. John chapter 6. And I'm going to read verse 1 through 14 here. So if you want to follow along, John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a new mountain and sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming unto him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And he said this to prove to him or to prove Philip, for he knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. What are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the men sit down and there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down and numbered about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus said, this is of a truth that the prophet should come into the world." So we're all familiar with the passage, right? You've heard it. One of the interesting things as I was reading over this and doing a little bit of the preparation for this is this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and the resurrection are the only two miracles that are mentioned in all four Gospels, the only one that all four Gospels mention a couple things i want to just bring out of this in verse two why were the multitudes following jesus because of who he was or because of what he had done the multitudes admired him and i heard david dr david jeremiah do a teaching on this in the last month and he was talking about socialism and its rise in our country and he said a lot of it and he's You know, I've stood up here and said this, a lot of the problems that we have in the world today, in this country, are because the church has not been the church. We haven't stood on the truth. We haven't proclaimed the truth. And we're in the trouble that we're in because of that. The church has been anemic. But one of the things he said is that right now in this world, we have a lot of people that claim to be Christians. And what we have is, he broke it down into two different categories. You have those that admire Jesus and those that follow Jesus. Is there a difference? Because you can admire Jesus for the things that he's done. You see the miracles. You hear the testimonies. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. Back then, they didn't have TV, did they? So what do you do for entertainment? You go see somebody heal people. You go see somebody do miracles. But if you're a follower of Jesus, does it change your life? Does it make you a different person than you were three years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it happens to be? If you're a follower of Christ, you don't care what the world thinks about you. You're not going to be turned away when people start criticizing you for being a Bible beater or for being different than they are, for standing against sin, for standing against things that are immoral, whatever it happens to be. Is if you're a follower of Christ, you don't care what the world says about you. You don't just admire Christ. You're going to follow him unto his death. And so don't just admire him. They followed him because of what he had been doing, because of the miracles that they had seen. Verse 5, Jesus saw the multitudes, and he tested Philip. How many of you have ever been tested in your life? And the person testing you already knew what the answer was and what they wanted to do. That's what Jesus did. He saw the multitude spread out over this hillside, 5,000 men plus women and children. And so he goes to Philip, hey, Philip, We've been here a long time, it's getting late, what are we gonna feed them? He was testing him, because it says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he was gonna see what Philip's answer would be. Um, Jesus saw the multitudes, tested Philip, and then in verse six it says that Jesus asked this to test him, because he already knew what he was going to do, but remember, the previous couple chapters, what had Jesus been doing? He'd been healing the sick. He'd been making the lame walk. He'd been healing people. He'd been doing miracles. The disciples saw all of this, right? And so wouldn't you think Philip would have a little better answer than what he did? In verse 7, it says, but Philip can only answer. I'm paraphrasing. Philip can only answer in the natural because he's still not filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, 200 days wages. How many of you, if you took your salary for the entire year and took two thirds of it? That's what Philip is saying here. If we took two thirds of your salary, we still couldn't feed this multitude except maybe a little bit, just enough maybe to give them a bite. So he he was hopeless. And then in verse 8, let's read verse 8 again. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said unto him, there is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they amongst so many?" So what I see here is Andrew's trying to have a little bit of faith. Okay. So if you can imagine five little barley loaves, you know, maybe little biscuits, if you will. And I want to emphasize how Andrew said that he has two small fish. It's nothing. But I want to have a little bit of faith, Jesus. So. Here's what we have is this little handful. And you see the number of people out here? It's nothing to them, is what Andrew was saying. Andrew wanted to have faith, but his natural eye said, look how many people are sitting out here. This isn't going to do a thing. I want you to think about the, this lad, this little boy that. John is the only one that actually even mentions this part of it, that it was this little boy. And you've all seen the cartoon versions of it, is you know this lad, his mom sends him off with this little basket of lunch. Okay. So where were his parents? You know, we're in a day and age, how many of you would send your parents off, or excuse me, send your young child off to a gathering of thousands of people? Probably not too many of you, depends on the gathering too, right? This little boy came seeking Jesus on his own. Matthew 19, 14 says, Jesus said, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so he says this, you know, many chapters, if you will, after this encounter with this little boy. And I think Jesus was remembering this little boy when he said that. When the disciples were trying to keep the children from coming to him, Jesus probably had to remind him of this incident, where this little boy sought him out on his own and came with a meal. His mom, we'll blame it on the mom, mom sent the little boy with his lunch, because that's what moms do, right? Send their kids off with lunch. And the question I started thinking of is, is this little boy the only one that brought food? I mean, 5,000 men, women, and children. And this little boy is the only one that had food. Because in one of the gospels, it said Jesus told the disciples, go out and see if anybody has anything. And so they went out and you know, did a census. Anybody got food? And so I'm speculating in a lot of this. But the little boy, if he was the only one with food, what's it say about the rest of them? Unprepared. But I'm speculating that there may have been other people that had food but I'm not sh- there's not enough for everybody. I'm not going to share it. So they kept it in their cloak. They weren't willing to share. So here you have this little boy who had the heart to say, it's insignificant. It's enough for me. But in the hands of my Jesus, do you see the faith, the, seed, the sacrificial seed that he planted? Because he could have been selfish. I mean, actually, would it have been selfish? His mom sent the lunch for him. And he could have eaten it because it was his lunch, Right. But he said, there's a need. He heard the call of Jesus and said, there's a need that this multitude needs to eat. It's insignificant. It's enough to feed me. But in the hands of Jesus, what can this do? What do you have in your hands? What seed do you have in your hands that's not enough to do everything that you need in the natural? But if you put it into the hands of Jesus, what can it do? So Jesus had sent the disciples out in the crowd. And again, Andrew's small faith, I can again, I'm envisioning things here, is Andrew's out in the crowd and says, does anybody have food? And you know, the little boy says, you know, I do, I do. And I'm thinking Andrew said, go away, punk. You don't, you don't have enough food to feed us all. What are you trying to do? And I can think Andrew was, I'm not going to Jesus with this. There's nothing there, boy. Go sit down and be quiet. But the little boy persisted and said, in Jesus' hands, this can do something. And so Andrew relented and took it to the Savior and said, there's this kid over here. He's got this little ins- insignificant lunch. He's five barley loaves and two small fish. But I'm going to bring it to you anyhow, just you know, so he'll leave me alone. And so in the hands of Jesus, what happened? What happened? If you remember back when Philip was answering, he said that even 200 days wages would be enough just to give them a little morsel. Okay? When Jesus took it and blessed it and broke it and said, pass it out to everybody, what did it say? Did they have just a little bit? Or did they eat until they were full? It says they ate until they were done. Again, I'm envisioning. I can't eat any more take it away there was too much food for thousands of people from this little insignificant seed that this boy was willing to offer up and it says that Jesus told them to go and gather what was left how many basketfuls were taken up how many disciples were there Do you think there's a coincidence there? Or does God know what he's doing? He was trying to build the faith of the disciples. You've got Philip there saying, there's not enough money. We can't feed all these people. Then you've got Andrew very sheepishly bringing this little insignificant lunch and saying, it's not enough, I know, but here's what we got. Their faith was not as strong as this little boy's. And so I think Jesus, in his miracle, There was 12 baskets of remnants left over for each one of the disciples to see, this is what faith can do. This is what something in my hands can do. And so he instructed them to gather it up, and they had to gather one basket for each one of them. And the question I asked myself is, where was the little boy this entire time? I think he was right by Jesus, by Andrew. And I think he just kept looking up at Andrew and saying, that's my Jesus. Do you see what he did? Where's your faith, Andrew? You've been walking with this man. You've seen so many miracles. Where's your faith? How long have you been walking with Jesus? Have you seen miracles? Have you had forgiveness break chains off of you? Where's your faith? Where's the seed in your hand that seems so insignificant that other people can't even see it? But if you give it into Jesus' hands, it becomes something that you've never expected. So what are the giants in your life? What's the mountains in your life that, it says the faith, like a mustard seed, will move mountains, right? What do you need moved? Put your faith, put your seed faith, your sacrificial seed faith in Jesus. John 10.10 says the thief, our enemy, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. Does it end there? Does he give you just enough to keep you alive? He gives you life more abundantly to a full measure. So if you're walking in just enough to keep you alive, you're not walking in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And you need to unshackle yourself. You need to forgive. You need to repent. So that the fullness of Christ, the Holy Spirit living in you will just break things open in your life and you'll see things the way you've never seen them before. Does that sound like a life worth living or are you just struggling to get by? If you're in that situation where you're just struggling to get by, it's about planting that faith seed because what we see in the little boy and what we see in Jesus is they didn't have to do what they did. The little boy didn't have to give up his lunch. He said, it's mine. Mom gave it to me. There's too too many of you for me to share this with. But he said, in Jesus' hand, here we go. Jesus did the same thing. He didn't have to sacrifice himself. But he did because of what he wanted out of it. He wanted us. And so you are the product of that seed, that sacrificial seed of Jesus planting himself. And if you read on, I'm going to encourage you all, go back and read John. Chapter 6, there's 71 verses, um, nice leisurely days read. Verses 15 through 21, right after the miracle of the feeding of the fish and loaves happens here, is when Jesus walks on the water. So right after this miracle, the, the disciples are out on the boat, not getting anywhere, making very limited progress against the storm, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water, demonstrating his power and his authority over creation, which he'd already done with the miracle. And then if you read on in verses 22 through 58, it's where Jesus makes the statement, I am the bread of life. How significant is that, that he's just done the multiplication of the bread to 12 basketfuls left over, and then he makes the pronouncement to them, I am the bread of life sent from heaven, that if you eat of me, That's why when we do communion, we celebrate with the bread. We remember through the bread, the breaking of the bread, is Jesus took an entire 36 verses to explain to them, he is the bread of life, and that if you eat of me, you will never die. So Jesus made himself as a payment for that, for our salvation, for our abundant life that he wants us to be walking in. And what's he want us to do with this life? He wants us to proclaim the truth. He wants us to demonstrate to people that what a little bit of faith in the heart of a redeemed believer can do to the world. So can you impact the world by yourself? Yes, because your world consists of what's around you, who's around you. So if you can impact those that are in your sphere of influence, you're reaching the world for the gospel. That's all he's asking you to do. He's not asking you to go to Timbuktu. Anybody know where Timbuktu is? Where is it, Jim? It's it? It's, I believe it's in Mali. So it's a real place. So if you ever heard that phrase, you go know, all the way to Timbuktu. It's a real place. You see South <laughs> Just a little southwest of Youngsville, yeah. Way out in the the sticks there, the uttermost parts of the world. Three things that I want you to see about this little boy, that we want to be like him, we, you know, we want to model our life after this little boy, is that you're going to seek Jesus, even if your family and friends don't go with you. Seek him with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, because he's got the answers. The second thing is, respond when Jesus says there's a need. You've been blessed with the solution, that if you hear him calling that there's a need for something, he may have put the resources in your hand, and even though it may seem like nothing in the scope of the need, sex slavery. Worldwide problem. One of the fastest growing businesses, if you will, in the world is sex slavery, human trafficking, whatever you want to call it. Little Russell, Pennsylvania, Praise Fellowship Church here, can we stop sex slavery in the world? We can, try. we can try. We can do what we can do. And if you can save one girl out of sex slavery, you've changed her world. The pictures that you saw just a little bit ago, those young girls, you think their life's different? They're not being raped every day? That's what a little bit of movement can do. Somebody getting something in their heart that I can do something. It may not be everything, but I can do something. And you can change one person's life by taking action. That's what a sacrificial seed can do. The third thing is you trust Jesus for the miracle. Even in the natural, even when your eyes, your senses tell you it's not possible, you trust Jesus that he's going to take what you've given and it's going to become a miracle in somebody's life when it doesn't seem possible. And the fourth thing is, it's not for your glory. The little boy didn't give up his lunch because he wanted to become famous, because we don't even know his name. John's the only one of the gospel writers that even mentioned it was his lunch. Matthew, Mark, and Luke said, five loaves and two fish appeared. Little boy brought them. But he didn't do it to get his own glory. He did it to put something in the hands of Jesus, because he knew there was something bigger than himself. So everything that we do should be for the glory of God. It's not for us. We're to be allowing ourselves to be used by God. We're to be seeds in the master's hand for him to use to glorify his own name. So does that sound like what you need to do? Follow this little boy, this insignificant little boy who doesn't even have a name in our book. But the example that he set is one that Jesus took and did some amazing things. So that's the kind of example that we want to follow. And that's why he's in the scriptures, is for us to understand what one little insignificant boy can do when the faith is there. So if you would, let's stand. And as we conclude for this morning, I want everybody that's being baptized to come forward here in a little bit. And I want to talk to you real briefly. Um, if you're looking for something to do for your lunchtime, we want to talk about giants. We want to talk about mountains. Um, the Bennett family, Michaela and Matt, everybody knows them. They sit over there usually, but they're not here today. Um, they had the young daughter die, five days old. Um, the twin brother, he's doing very good. Um, they've got a mountain of debt. Can you imagine being in the hospital for, in the emergency room, intensive care, for months and the bills that they have? Um, so if you're looking for something to do, they're having a benefit dinner for them up in Celeron at the Legion in Celeron, New York, from one to five today that you can go and you know, get, a, get something to eat and also help support them, help them get out of the debt that they're in from the mountains of health bills that they have. But again, obviously keep praying for them because that's the easy thing for us all to do is to pray for them. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord I thank you that you're so loving towards us that even when we didn't deserve it, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins to redeem us from hell and from the bondages that we're in. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you you came in obedience, that when Jesus ascended on high, you came in and indwell us as believers. So Lord, just guide us, teach us. Take the little bit of faith that we have and let us see great things from it, that your name is glorified, that your name is made famous throughout the world and that Russell, Pennsylvania will become a place where people can see your light and see the hope that your believers, that your followers, take out of this place and take into the community, into their places of business and just even their recreation, Lord. We thank you that your name is glorious, that your love is so abounding that we can't truly fathom it. But we thank you we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Go and have a great day. And again, those of you being baptized, please come up front here for a moment.